Hi, everyone. Um, really quick, just as a reminder, our ladies' night is our every other month ladies' fellowship, and uh, our next one will be February 2nd. It will be hosted by our very own Franny Binkowski. Uh, so if you have not yet let her know that you're attending, Franny, can you wave your hand? Please let her know, just so that we have an idea of how many people are coming. This is open to all women of Eternal City, whether you're a visitor or a member, but it's also open to guests. This is a perfect opportunity to bring your friends who may be unchurched, who don't have a church home, but they are believers. It's open to any and all. It's very low key. It's just fun and fellowship and usually good food. So um, make sure that you RSVP with Franny by um, next Monday, so the, the Monday after family meal, okay? There is another slide. Um, thank you. So we are also getting ready to relaunch our next Bible study. If you attended the Ephesians study last year, you know that it was a blessing. Um, we were challenged in our faith as we went verse by verse through scripture, but we all also grew together. And so for 2024, we will be doing our study on the fruit of the spirit from Galatians 5. Uh, our first session will be on February 17th. We'll be starting with our annual ladies brunch. More details and information will be forthcoming, um, including the dates. We will be updating the website um, with the new dates for the year, but go ahead and put February 17th on your calendars. For the ladies Bible study, this is limited to the members and regular attenders of Eternal City. So this is not something that's open to visitors and guests. It is only for the ladies who are members and regular attenders. It will be every other Saturday um, starting at 10.30 and we really do try to be out by 12.30. We'll have more information coming, um, but go ahead, mark your calendars for February 17th. We are cutting off signups as of February 11th. So as before, make sure that you are checking your calendar, make sure that you can commit to the study, not because we don't understand things happen, of course they do, but we really want to grow together in the word and for that to happen, we do want you to commit to doing at least the majority of the study. So check your calendars, sign up with Elizabeth Rue. Elizabeth, can you wave your hand? She's there in the back by February 11th, and we'll have more info about um, what passages of scripture we'll be studying each week. Just as a quick reminder, we don't provide childcare and we can't have unattended children here in the building. However, if you are a nursing mother, you are welcome to come with your nursing children. Um, and I believe that's it. We'll have more of the details coming. Thank you. Thanks, Jackie. Okay, moving right along. We have a membership meeting the first Sunday of February. It's gonna be directly after the worship gathering. Uh, you don't have to do anything to prepare for it, just stay after worship. This is for more than just members though. So if you want to know what's going on behind the scenes at Eternal City Church, 
please stay. We're gonna have uh, dinner for you. It won't be family meal big dinner, but it will be enough to keep you going for 45 minutes while we do this members meeting. We are gonna aim at 45 minutes, so we're not gonna take several hours of your time. Uh, please stay. If you're a member especially, please stay. If you're a, a regular attender and you want to learn more about Eternal City Church, we would also encourage you, please stick around. And so we'll announce this next week as well. Uh, the Foundry is our men's ministry, and we have taken a break through Christmas, and we're going to start back up uh, February 9th. February 9th, 6.30 p.m. in this room is the plan. So February 9th, Friday, 6.30 p.m., and then we meet once a month in person here in this room for dinner and for teaching. But then in addition, there's daily scripture reading and interaction on our app. There is accountability and prayer and support in small groups that uh, generally will tend to meet and communicate in a smaller fashion. And sometimes there's even one-on-one -on -one accountability, but that is up to each individual member. And what we've learned as we've launched this last January, so this is a year old now, uh, we've learned that if you will put the work into the foundry, you will be blessed by the foundry. But if you just kind of like are half-hearted about it, it's not gonna be a great ministry for you. So I'm not trying to discourage anyone. I'm just trying to encourage everyone who might uh, think about this. It's just like the gym. If you buy the gym membership and you go once, you can't get mad at Planet Fitness. It's not their fault. They're like, oh, that gym membership's trash. No, you just don't go, right? So in the same way, whatever programs the church puts forward for discipleship. Friends, you got to put the work in if you're going to benefit from it. Okay, so again, the Foundry, the first launching meeting is 2-9, uh, and then 2-10, we will launch into daily scripture reading. We will launch back into our accountability groups, prayer, support, and even for you who are very ambitious, we can launch back into our yearly goals and action steps to accomplish those goals. So if you've never been a part of the Foundry before, come on 2-9 in this room at 6.30 p.m. and you will learn all about it. And we will uh, get you everything you need. Uh, please participate. Here is a sign-up sheet for those of you who um, have not ever been a part of it before, but if you're also planning on being a part of it, please hit this sign-up sheet. We're gonna put it in the back by the coffee and it'll stay back there for the next several weeks. All right. Last one. So every Sunday from 4 to 4.45, we are meeting for prayer just upstairs next to the nursery. And so uh, the nursery is to my right, down the hallway, up the stairs, first room on the right. And the next door is uh, the prayer room. And so if you're so inclined to come and pray for the church and for the needs of the church, please do so every Sunday at 4 to 4.45, just before worship. All right, at this time, we are gonna begin worship. So if you could please stand we're going to read the scriptures together with Mackenzie. Hi, everyone. If we could read this word together, coming from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Thank you. Good evening. Good to see everybody. And 
is one day in your house, better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. Better is one day in your courts, better is one day in your house, better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere, than thousands elsewhere. Though I 
I'm going to dismiss the children and the uh, nursery shortly. And while I do that, I do want to make mention of something that happened this week that perhaps our other elders, Chris and Eddie, are too humble to mention, but they were on the radio this week. On uh, Anybody know the John and Kathy show? They were on the ride home with John and Kathy this week. That was, was it Monday, Eddie? Uh, Monday, yes. OK, Monday. So, uh, they were interviewed for, in honor of, uh, and just talked about, right? Was it Martin Luther King Day? So John and Kathy, they've, they've been there before, but um, I just want to make mention of that, and I'm sure we can share the link on our Facebook page and make it available if anybody wants to listen to Pastor Chris, Pastor Eddie talk about the legacy of Martin Luther King and what it means for us as a church that seeks to uh, unify people across color, culture, class, and capacity and that's actually what I want to pray for um, before we dismiss and release the children, is that core commitment at ECC to unify people. Thank you. To unify people across color, culture, class, and capacity, that is certainly something that is not easy and not something that we want to do apart from the work and the power of the Spirit. So pray with me. Lord, we are um, coming before you Humbly, knowing that, uh, as your word says, apart from you, we can't bear any kind of lasting or, or good or eternal fruit. And we know that particularly in the area of people being one, there have been many campaigns and causes and ideologies that have sought to unify people and to right the wrongs that was done and to bring justice to people who have been divided by injustice. But we as a body of believers, want to first and foremost recognize that we are all created in your image, and that is the unifying principle among us, that we are created in your image, redeemed by Christ, and in his lordship have unity, have a, a new family and a new identity that we aspire to, which is your sons and daughters. So would we, um, as your word says, though, still make every effort to maintain that unity through the bond of peace? Would we have the conversations and seek to understand and seek to listen and seek to apply the gospel and apply the fruit of the spirit as our women's study is going to apply the fruit of the spirit where areas maybe of hurt or injustice or just misunderstanding or or mistrust lord would we build relationships that do unify people that unify us not to by flattening our differences but by uh, amplifying them and that they are created in the image of god and that we are still all one in Christ. So help us to live in light of that mission, God. Even as we dismiss the children, Lord, I pray that our children would um, lead the way in this and that they are um, oftentimes ignorant to the, the ills of history. They're ignorant to a lot of the grievances that exist today. And would they grow up with that core identity that they are sons and daughters of God, that they are part of a family, a body of believers, and that they can um, live in light of their true identity in Christ and have their other identities, their gender, their place of origin, their birth, their country of origin, Lord, while those are good and true, they would be subservient to the, the Lordship of Jesus Christ in their life, Lord. So we pray for our kids, for our nursery workers, for our children's workers, that they would promote and, and allow our children to walk in the fullness of who they are in Christ, including their 
um, their, their identities and the things that you created unique about them, Lord. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Children, you are dismissed. All right. Today we are continuing our series in Exodus, and we're going to be in Exodus chapter 2. We're going to look at the first 10 verses of Exodus. So if you have, have your Bible with you, Exodus chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. That's Exodus chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10. I'll read them, and then we will get started. Exodus 2, 1 through 10. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me. I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. What I appreciate about the book of Exodus is its storytelling. It draws you in with compelling narratives, and it gives you interesting characters, one of whom we just read about, Moses. Now, what's interesting about the intro to this book is it doesn't mention Moses' name until the end. It just describes him as a baby coming from a Levite family. And I think there's a significant point to why it does that. But if you're familiar, in 1988, or 88, not 88, 98, in 1998, DreamWorks put out a film about Exodus called, anybody? Prince of Egypt, a classic. So Val Kilmer, Sandra Bullock were uh, some of the famous actors that were in it. Mariah Carey, Whitney Houston sang on the soundtrack. And it was interesting to see modern celebrities, some of the biggest celebrities of their day, portray the biblical characters. The dangerous thing, though, I think, about a story like Exodus is that we can lose ourselves in it. Just like the actors who played the biblical figures in the movie Prince of Egypt. And it's fun and, and, and cool to see Val Kilmer and Sandra Bullock and others play the characters and fun to imagine what I would do or what I would be like if I were in the story, if I were Moses. There's a danger to that because there's nothing wrong with wanting to emulate those Old Testament virtues, but the danger is when we apply those virtues broadly to ourselves and lose the broader narrative and the broader figure behind the text. There's actually a story about a football coach named Tony Dungy. Tony Dungy is a Christian. 
He's outspoken about his belief, written many books, done many radio interviews. And Tony Dungy used to coach the Indianapolis Colts. In 2007, the Colts were playing the Bears in the Super Bowl, and they asked a pastor to address the team uh, the night before the game. In sports, they call this a chapel service. They'll have a pastor or a Christian figure come in and give uh, like a 15-minute sermon to the team. Of course, it's the Super Bowl, so what does this pastor talk about? David and Goliath, the old classic. So during chapel service, this pastor gives them, I'm sure, a really encouraging story about David and Goliath, and Tony Dungy was so inspired by the chapel message that he decided to change his game plan. Now, the Bears had really one player on their offense who was dangerous. Not many football fans. His name was Devin Hester. So Devin Hester, he was amazing, and he's in the Hall of Fame. Almost any time Devin Hester touched the ball, he would score. So the Colts' game plan was, don't kick it to him, don't punt it to him, try not to let him catch it. He's really the only person that can hurt us on their offense. Well, Tony Dungy was a Christian. He was inspired by David and Goliath, and he decided to change his game plan. Being inspired by David and Goliath, he says, you know, we're not going to go in fearing men. We've got our, you know, figurative smooth stones. We're going to go in and slay the giant, the giant being Devin Hester. So he tells his team, we're kicking it to him. First play of the game, we're kicking it to Devin Hester. We're not going to fear men. We're going to go in there. We're going to be brave. We're going to be bold, and we're going to slay the giant. Does anybody know what happened on the first play of the game? They kicked it to Devin Hester. 12 seconds later, he scored a touchdown. So Tony Dungy read himself a little bit too much into the story. He's a Christian, and uh, in interviews in later years, he's admitted that he missed the point of the chapel service. I don't want us to miss the point of Moses' birth. I don't want us to leave here and only think that I should be like Moses' mom and, and trust the problems of my life by faith to God and watch him do abundantly more that I can think or ask. I don't want us to leave here and only think that I should be like Pharaoh's daughter and show compassion to those around me, and perhaps I'd be caring for the next great leader or great deliverer. I don't want us to leave here and only think that I should be like Moses and know that even if things aren't working out the way in my life that I think they should, that God can bring redemption and deliverance. None of those are bad things, but none of those are absolutes, as Tony Dungy learned on the night of the Super Bowl about David and Goliath. I can't guarantee you that if you imitate Moses' mother, that you'll get your deliverance, you'll get your liberation, you'll get your liberator. But there is, like I said, an absolute in this passage that we can all hold on to. But to find it, I believe we need to step outside of ourselves for a bit and look past some of the things in this passage that are good, but hold on to the one solid thing that we can all uh, emulate or gravitate towards amongst the many good things that are in this passage. And there are many good things, but there is also providence. So before we get to the, the actual, um, I think, weighty truth behind this passage, I want to give just a bit of context. One of my favorite songs from the movie Prince of Egypt is the song, Deliver Us. I won't sing. You should be happy about that. But it is a, a, a gripping and emotionally moving song because it shows the condition of the Israelites. They're slaves 
in need of deliverance. So after Joseph's family dies out, the Israelites continue to multiply, and the Egyptians are scared that if they're outnumbered and a war breaks out, that they will be outnumbered by the Israelites. So it's not an outright hatred for the Israelites that drives uh, the Egyptians to oppress them. It's the preservation of the Egyptian way of life. It's fear of man. It's this sort of multi-layered onion of sinful and selfish motivations that lead the Egyptians to, press, to oppress the Israelites. And there are many examples of that in history, in American history as well. Slavery and exploitation can be as much about self-preservation as it is about outright hatred. Now, sometimes the question is raised, especially as you look through a few chapters later in Exodus, there are laws that sort of regulate slavery. In the New Testament, there are laws that re regulate, you could say perhaps discourage, but don't outright abolish slavery. And so oftentimes, especially in the American context, the question that's raised is, well, does God approve of slavery? Because it seems there are parts and portions of the Bible that perhaps regulate it, uh, or at times maybe softly discourage it, but don't outright uh, abolish it. And while those are worthwhile discussions, I think oftentimes what, get lost, what gets lost in that conversation about slavery laws and examples of slavery in the Bible is Exodus. Because if we start with Exodus, we can really understand God's posture towards slavery and oppression. If you know the Exodus narrative, you know the story. You know that God goes to drastic means to deliver his people. And while there is still oppression, there is still slavery, there, is still, there are still people being exploited globally, Exodus gives us a peek into how God responds to the mistreatment of his people. And Israel's oppression wasn't just slave labor, it was also population control. We've talked about this in the previous two weeks, right? That Pharaoh said every baby that was a boy that was born had to be killed to keep the Israelites from expanding and to keep their numbers down. And actually, there's an interesting parallel because you see that in Jesus' birth as well. He's under a king who has an edict that's very similar that the boys should not be allowed to live. And, Chris touched on it last week, we see this somewhat in our modern day as well, countries that have forced sterilization or countries like ours where there's mass abortion going on. There is still an evil that's pervasive that wants to kill young children. And God's response to this in Exodus, when it's fully manifested, is one of, one of absolute deliverance for his people, but also justice to those who have wronged his people. So keep that in mind when you see injustice today. God will not be silent forever. God will deliver and bring justice to his people. He will deliver his people, and he will bring justice to those that have wronged them. So that is the context. Moses is born into an oppressive and hostile world where his people are not allowed to keep their sons. And with that context, I want to look really at three things. Moses' birth, Moses' rescue, and Moses' upbringing. Keeping in mind providence. So the first few verses of Exodus 2, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar pitch. She placed the child in it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. 
His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. So Moses is born under this decree to put all male children in the river to drown them. I like how the author of Exodus, Moses, which is most, what most Christian scholars believe, I like how the author describes the birth of this child. He was a fine child. <laughs> Moses is kind of saying, I was a cute baby. They didn't want to do away with me. They couldn't discard me. So his family devises this plan to keep him. Once he's passed three months, he's probably getting bigger, harder to hide, he's crying. It's harder to keep the secret that says they put him in a papyrus basket. Now, the interesting detail that's used in this word to describe papyrus basket comes out in verse 3. If you have a King James Bible, it says he was put in an ark of bulrushes. Now, that wording is a little more awkward, but it's more accurate to what was actually going on here. The wording here in the King James is intentional, especially the use of the word ark. This phrase is only used in one other story in Scripture, and it's when Noah is building an ark in Genesis. So it's the same word. Noah built an ark. Moses was put in an ark. And while they're not literally the same, figuratively, they are similar. They function similarly. God is delivering his people through this ark while the world around them is being judged. God, again, is about to judge, and he's going to raise up a deliverer, Moses, through an ark. So while Moses and his mother and sister think they're just doing the best they can to care for a child in their family who's born into a really harsh circumstance, they don't know that they're raising up the one who's going to deliver them from oppression. Keep that in mind when you show compassion to people. Keep that in mind, parents, when you're caring for your children, when you're changing the 18th, 19th, 20th, however many diapers you have to change, when you're caring for that relative or caring for that family member or that friend who's in a tough time, keep in mind that the compassion that you show to someone who seems helpless could be God's providence working in that person to raise up a great leader, a great deliverer, a great believer who can deliver and do many other things exponentially through that person's life that you don't know about while you're caring for them. Moses' sister and his mother are modeling that for us. They're also modeling for us, I think, a tension most of us experience or know about or have heard about at times as well. The tension being that I have the government's authority telling me to do one thing, but as a member of God's people, I believe that what they're telling me is wrong. God's word or God's instructions tell me to do another. Which of those do I obey? We must obey God rather than men. I get that phrase from a New Testament example in the book of Acts. The high priest told the apostles to stop preaching the name of Jesus. In their response to him, Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. And that should be our response. If you find yourself in a position where an authority figure is telling you to do something that is sinful, keyword sinful, not just something that is inconvenient, or something that you don't necessarily want to do, it's not your preference, but an authority figure is telling you to do something that is absolutely, objectively sinful, we must obey God rather than men, applies. Hebrews, uh, written years and years, decades later, honors Moses' family for their bravery in obeying God rather than men. It says, by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid 
of the king's edict. We're all beneficiaries of men and women who have lived by a similar ethic. Martin Luther King, we just celebrated his birthday a few weeks ago, had a similar approach to laws that were racist and denied people certain rights based on their skin color. We must obey God rather than men. And while it can be encouraging to think about the historical examples of that that have brought deliverance for people, as I say that, I want to warn you, the Israelites were beneficiaries of Moses' obedience, Moses' family obedience to obey God rather than men. It led to their deliverance. But this is why we have to be careful about reading ourselves directly into these stories, because do you know what happened to the apostles when they obeyed God rather than men, when they kept preaching the gospel? They were all martyred. So we have to be careful to say that because if I follow this example from Moses' family, I'll get a similar result. That's why I don't want us to just read ourselves into these passages, and I don't want, it to, want us to miss the greater reality that's at work here. Moses' mother and his sister are commendable, but providence. God is making a way for his people to know him and to worship him. And God is making that way using even people that don't know him or that are perhaps even hostile to him. If you continue in Exodus 2, verses 5 and 6, Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. So we looked at Moses' birth. Now his deliverance. Pharaoh's daughter has no interest in God the God of the Israelites, or his people. She's, as we've talked about, she's probably hostile to them because according to Pharaoh, the Egyptian way of life is threatened by the population of the Israelites. So she could have taken that basket and flipped it over, and no one would have thought she was wrong. Actually, they probably would have applauded her. And in fact, she might be putting herself in danger by not flipping the basket over and drowning the child. If it get, word gets back that she saw this Hebrew boy floating in the river and didn't do what the edict was, she could be in serious trouble. Because to her and, Egypt, and all the Egyptians, there's that line in there. He's one of the Hebrew babies. So this isn't just a baby. This is one of the Hebrew babies. And here, she's faced with a choice. Do I treat this child like a baby or like a Hebrew baby? That type of thinking that denies compassion to people based off their ethnic identity is a direct affront to Genesis 127, this idea that we're all made in God's image. And that type of thinking has led to the oppression of many different types of people groups. In Nazi Germany, the question might have been, do we treat these people as babies or Jewish babies? In India, the caste system, the question might be, do we treat these people as babies or babies specific to their rank in the caste system? In American history, the question could have been, do we treat these people as babies or as black babies? There is an ethnic identity that can sometimes serve as a way to deny people the fact that they are made in the image of God. And for Moses, it is true. He is a Hebrew baby. But like I said, it is a distortion of the image of God stamped on him to treat him differently because of that identity. What the doctrine of the Imago Dei or the image of God should do is give us all a ground-level baseline dignity 
that we're all treated with a certain level of compassion and worthiness and care based on the fact that we're all made in God's image, regardless of our background. Pharaoh's daughter should care for the baby because it's a baby. And in doing so, she shouldn't have to ignore the fact that, oh, by the way, he is a Hebrew baby. Because an accurate understanding of the image of God allows us to see and appreciate the differences that people are made with, but still treat them with a baseline level of compassion because we are all made in God's image. The Bible says in Acts 17.26 that God is actually the one responsible for our differences. From one man, he made every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places. So the differences, black, white, Egyptian, Hebrew, Indian, show the creativity of a God who made us all in his image. And throughout history, people have, people have struggled to embrace those differences that God created us with. That's why you see different conflicts arise between different people groups, oftentimes based on their racial or ethnic categories. But the solution to racial hatred is not colorblindness. It's seeing that image of God amongst the differences that exist within his people. And then there's this idea that I love that is at work in this passage called common grace. It's that even in a world where people are taught the exact opposite, they can still do things that reflect the fact that they are made in God's image, and we oftentimes do things that reflect that image that we're made in, even though we don't necessarily know it or we're taught it. And that's what we see at work in Pharaoh's daughter. She sees this baby in a basket, it's crying, and she has compassion. And Moses' sister sees it too. She's waiting in the wings right there. There's probably some kind of plan devised to rescue her brother. So again, just like Moses' birth, there are many things we can appreciate and observe that are good about his deliverance. Pharaoh's daughter shows compassion to another person who's made in God's image, even though she was probably taught to do the opposite. Moses' sister is there waiting in the wings and shows that she perhaps is waiting for God to do something miraculous so that she can save her brother. She's ready to act. She has faith that is followed up by some level of action. These are good things and things that I think in many ways we can emulate, but there's a, a broader theme here. There is a broader reality at play. Providence. We've seen the birth of Moses. We've seen the deliverance of Moses. The last thing I want to look at, picking up in verse 8, is Moses' upbringing, his background, how he is raised. So, verse 8. Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of water. So not only does Pharaoh's daughter allow Moses to live, but she ensures that he's taken care for and provided for. She pays Moses' mother to nurse the boy, and Moses is given back to Pharaoh's family and to the Egyptians when he's older. You can read past that really quickly, but as I was thinking about that and processing this passage, that's probably a really disappointing thing for Moses' mother. She loses her baby, and she gets him back, and she has to give him back to the people that are oppressing them. 
and he's raised as an Egyptian, learning their culture, their customs, which are the complete opposite of what they were probably taught as Israelites, worshiping the God of the Bible. Acts recounts this uh, sort of interaction in, in history of Moses. It says, at the time Moses was born, he was beautiful in the sight of God. For three months, he was nursed in his father's house. When he was set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. So Moses is educated. He learns all of the cutting edge. This is like being raised at like a Harvard or a Yale. This is the most educationally advanced society on the face of the planet. And Moses is raised amongst them. He learns their science, their astrology, all the things that they're probably teaching their young Egyptians. And like any mother, Moses' mother is probably worried, well, the small amount of time I had with my son, teaching him, trying to sing lullabies or songs or entrust to him the things of the God of the Bible, the things of the God of Israel, will that be enough to prevent him from straying and worshiping the God of the Egyptians? Or will he abandon his people when he learns all of the customs and cutting edge things that the Egyptians were doing? Will Moses forget his people? Hebrews gives us some insight to that. Hebrews 12, 24 and 26. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. So Moses being raised as an Egyptian, he gets all of their math and education and science and technological advances, but he doesn't abandon his people. He doesn't forget his God. He doesn't forget the God that he was raised with. He uses that education ultimately to deliver his people from oppression. And in fact, more than that, he writes books of the Bible. And when he writes those books, you, it's hard to deny the fact that I'm sure his arithmetic and his reading and his reasoning skills were given to him by the Egyptians. He used those things to glorify God, which is a perhaps model or ideal for believers as we go into the workplace and the institutions and the colleges, learn those things, learn the math, learn the science, learn the history, the arithmetic, and use it in ways to glorify God. Moses it can be a good example for us in that regard. Like I said, there are many commendable things we can do here, or, or observe here. Moses using his Egyptian heritage, his Egyptian education, ultimately to glorify God. He remembers his people, and he remembers his people, particularly when they're treated harshly, and we'll talk more about that next week. Pharaoh's daughter is a good example in this passage that she shows compassion. More than that, compassion and mercy, she actually provides a means for Moses to have somewhat of an education and an upbringing and be nursed by his people. There are some good things here, but there's a bigger theme here in Moses' birth, in Moses' delivery, in Moses' upbringing. Providence. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines providence as divine guidance or care, and it's often actually used, even in English, uh, with a capitalized letter to signify that that divine guidance or care comes from God as he shapes human destiny. I think over all of the admirable things that we can see in this passage, the thing that we can all hold on to is God's providence. Put yourself for one minute in the shoes of the Israelites. You're living in an oppressive state. Your people are slaves. 
your firstborns are decreed to be killed, to keep your population down, if you could draw it up yourself, deliverance for you might look like a, a superhero, Superman or Thor swooping in to plunder the Egyptians and destroy their gods and deliver his people. Or, even now in our current season, deliverance for you, if you could draw it up in your own imagination, might look like a politician, a charismatic figure to oppose Pharaoh and win through democratic election and overthrow the Egyptian government and bring about a new government that allows you as an Israelite to worship and to be amongst your people and to expand and to thrive. Providence, though, in this scenario, looks a little bit different. Instead, you get this baby who's born into a very unlikely circumstance, gets some very specific, you could even say, if you looked at it through a non-godly lens, lucky. <laughs> he gets some lucky breaks in his life. He's raised by this Egyptian family, and he plays a critical role in the deliverance of his people as do his mother and sister. So there are other characters in this story. Moses' mother has a lot to be admired, Moses' sister, even Pharaoh's daughter. Because as she said, I, I, I drew this child out of water. That's where he got his name from. Pharaoh's daughter goes as far as to say, I drew this child up out of the water. Therefore, I will call him Moses. But underneath all those seemingly unlikely events and characters weaving together for the deliverance of the Israelites is God's providence. This is a theme throughout the prophets in the Old Testament, but also what, the one I wanted to bring as an example, particularly for today, is when they get to Mount Sinai and they lay down the Ten Commandments. A lot of us probably know them by heart, all the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots. But before we get into those Ten Commandments, there's a commandment zero. Before God calls his people to any moral standard, he calls them to remember and he calls them to remember his providence. Exodus 22 and three, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other God before me. Before any, well, the, the, before the first commandment is laid down, God calls his people to remember his providence. Before we get to how you should live or what you should do or what you should or should not eat, what you should or should not do, Remember what I did for you. I brought you out. Not Moses, not Moses' family, not Pharaoh's daughter drawing Moses out of water, not the Red Sea being parted. I brought you out of slavery. Now, maybe that seems obvious. Like, who would forget, if you lived through that kind of narrative, who would forget living through an Exodus type event where you're living under slavery and then there's a Red Sea parting and you're miraculously delivered and there's all these plagues that lead to your deliverance? Who would forget that? Me? Maybe you? <laughs> if you read Exodus, I can identify with many of the things I see because the Israelites, they forget. As we go through Exodus, you'll see time again, over and over, where God's people forget their God. They grumble, they're impatient, they worship other gods. And the root cause of their sin is not so much that they forget that like grumbling's wrong, or they forget like, oh, an idol? We can't make idols, I just forgot. Like, they, it's not that they forget these things, they forget their God. And more specifically, I think when God is silent, they mistake his silence for his impotence. 
God's not doing anything, so I guess we'll start to make our own way. The Red Sea was parted, but I've got to, got to figure it out myself now. God must be trying to figure something out, and he's stuck. God is slowing down. God is not doing what I, what I know he can do. He must not be doing what I want, so let me figure it out myself. They mistake his silence for his impotence. The same God who raises up Moses, who parts the Red Sea, who sends the mighty plagues that deliver them from Egypt, is the same God who watched them suffer for years of oppression. He's the same God that watches them wander in the wilderness. And both of those are examples of his providence. In one, he revealed them, himself to them by his power, and in another, he taught them to truly depend on him. Read God's word to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 8 before they enter the promised land. This is Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 5. So he's calling them to a moral standard here. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way out of the wilderness for these 40 years to humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during those 40 years. Know in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. So God taught the Israelites through miraculous things like plagues and parting the Red Sea, but in Deuteronomy, he reminds them that he also taught them through hunger. He taught them through wandering in the wilderness and experiencing pain. I caused you to hunger. God is taking responsibility, saying, I was the one that caused you to hunger so that you would know that man does not live on bread alone. I caused you to hunger. God, in his providence, teaches us through both miracles and suffering. It is the case for the Israelites, and it is the case for us. Remember that in your life when things don't look right. The same God who watched the Israelites suffer at times, and at times in Deuteronomy caused them to suffer, is the same God who parted the Red Sea. The same God who watches us suffer, and even at times causes us to suffer, is the same God who delivers us, the same God who died on the cross for us. He does not go through phases of incompetence. Rather, he uses everything, even the hard things, the confusing things, and the good things to lead us to trust him. That is his providence. And just like the Israelites were told to remember God before they were given the Ten Commandments, we're also called to remember. Specifically, we're called to remember Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate sign, the most clear sign, of God's providence. Just like Moses, he was born into unlikely circumstances where the firstborns were supposed to be killed, but he lived a life worthy to deliver each of us from the slavery of sin. Romans 6 puts it this way, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from those things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, 
The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If I could leave you with one thing from this first 10 verses of Exodus, it would be to remember. Remember God's providence. And ultimately for us, that means remembering Jesus. For all the good things we do and we can emulate from Exodus, we do not in and of ourselves have the power to defeat sin. We are as helpless as the Israelites, but God in his providence. Jesus made a way for us to be free from sin, both the sin of slavery and the slavery of sin. Let's remember him. And specifically, let's remember Jesus when it seems like he's quiet, when it seems like he's absent. Maybe for you that time is now. Uh, Christmas is a, a great holiday. There's a lot of fanfare. Christmas music, you walk in the mall and you hear joy to the world. The Lord seems like he's being exalted all the time. And then we get to where we are now. It's January, it's cold, it's dark, it's wet. And we are nowhere near spring or Easter. In times like these, the call to remember the Lord is hard because when you remember the Lord, the weather doesn't change. Just like the Israelites, when they remember the Lord, they were still in the wilderness. It didn't immediately change their circumstance. And sometimes God in his providence wants us in that place. He wants us there in the cold, in the dark, in the wilderness, remembering him. I like how Hebrews describes Moses. It says in the, the, the verse in Hebrews we read, let me go back. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible. He persevered. If you read Exodus, Moses was far from perfect, but he persevered. He didn't work his way into a perfection. He just persevered. And sometimes that's all we can do. Keep turning back to Jesus. Keep repenting. Keep praying. Keep gathering with the Lord's people and press on. And we can keep doing this because Jesus, who might seem like he's far off, is patient with us. Even as he teaches us through what seems like silence, even as he teaches us through suffering, Jesus is patient with us and he is near to us. Hebrews goes through this long list of Old Testament characters and what's called the Hall of Faith. And Moses is mentioned in that. And when you get to... Hebrews 11, the end of Hebrews 11 going into 12, there's this connection made between all of the Old Testament heroes, so Moses and others. There's this connection made between them and us. So Hebrews 11, starting at verse 39, going into verse tw uh, chapter 12. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had promised something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay off every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for who the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. 
Hebrews is saying that since we're surrounded by all these heroes of the faith, and since we have what they didn't, we can look to a historical Jesus who was crucified and buried and raised again. We can look to a historic resurrection. We have the ultimate deliverer. We have the true and better Moses, the perfecter of our faith. Fix your eyes on him. Remember what he did for you. When life is hard, remember. When God seems far off, remember. Remember God's providence is at work in ways that you probably don't know or can't see or can't understand. Just like it was in the birth of Moses. And just like Moses, we look to him who is invisible to our natural eyes and we persevere and we keep going. Communion is the most tangible way that we can remember Jesus. We're commanded to do it. And up front, I talked about how in the midst of pain and suffering and injustice in the world, God will deliver his people. Figuratively, that's what you see going on in Exodus. And God will. He will deliver his people. God's deliverance from sin, though, also includes God's judgment of sinners. Figuratively, the Israelites are delivered, and figuratively, the Egyptians were judged. And the only way that we can escape God's actual judgment is to trust in Jesus. Jesus is God's providence to us, to deliver us from sin. His body was broken, his blood was shed, so that we could know God as our deliverer and not our judge. So as we remember Jesus, as we take communion, remember God's providence, ultimately in Jesus, but even in the day-to-day things you see happening, the, seem, the things that seem small, the things that seem insignificant, it is very much like the Lord to use small and insignificant means to bring about major kingdom, major Jesus-reflecting impact. So keep that in mind when you're around others, showing them compassion, caring for them, doing your day-to-day things. Remember that God is sovereign and that God's providence works through many things, great and small, to bring about deliverance for his people. And remember, we can look ultimately to Jesus, who is God's providence to us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that unlike our heroes in the faith, we have an actual historical account. We have a historical birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We have a resurrection and a hope that we can point to. And more than that, we have the Holy Spirit that fills us and that reminds us of the hope that we have in Jesus. God, help us to remember your providence this week that you are working and doing and shaping us in ways that probably we don't know, that resurrection hope comes through big but also small and seemingly insignificant means, and that all those things are under the lordship of Jesus, who is reconciling all things to himself. God, let us turn from our sin that so easily entangles us and remember you. Let us turn from the things that are smaller and and lesser and cheaper and counterfeit versions of you. And let us give our lives to the God who is worthy of our lives, all of them. Help us to entrust ourselves, our minds, our will, our emotion, our actions to the Lordship of Jesus. And when it seems like he's silent this week, tomorrow, whenever that may happen for us, Lord, help us to remember.
Help us to remember the God that we serve. Help us to trust in him. Help us to look forward to being united to him and with him in a city that needs no light because the glory of the love of the Father and the Son gives it its light, Lord. Help us with eyes of faith to remember Jesus and help us to live with resurrection hope. Lord, it's in your name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Can everyone please stand? have your elements, prepare them now. We're going to take communion together as one church. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and wine and broke it with his disciples, reminding them that the bread and the wine is a reminder of his body that was broken, his blood that was shed, to reconcile us to him, to pay the price for our sin. His life was the life that fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law that makes us able to stand freely and boldly in the presence of God. 
and all who desire to live under his lordship and have fellowship with him are commanded to take this bread and this cup as a remembrance of his death and eagerly await his return. So let's take the bread, let's take the cup together and remember Jesus. Lord, would you, by the power of your spirit, give us resurrection hope. Hope that sees things that seem dead, that seem hopeless, that seem abandoned. Even in our own lives, sin patterns, relationships, would we have hope that they can be raised to life? And at the very least, would we have hope that Jesus loves and cares for those around us? He loves and cares for us, and he disciplines us. You discipline us as a father disciplines his son. God, will we embrace the good, the bad, the hard, the confusing, all things that are used in your providence to make us more like you, to trust you, to know you, and to walk with you. Help us remember Jesus this week. Help us remember the providence of our God, that he works through many things to make us like his son. And help us by the power of the spirit to live with obedience and to live with joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Have a good week.